right, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, Bethany West Seattle. My name is Prentice, and I get the privilege to be the pastor here uh, at this church. And uh, I saw this clip earlier in the day, or earlier in the week, and couldn't just help but to get a little choked up, and maybe you're there too, and what a beautiful message it is, and it's something that we'll be talking about uh, this morning uh, as we continue this series called uh, Portraits, Representing Christ. Uh, and it's this whole idea that uh, in our faith, oftentimes the culture of the world, whoever the world or whoever the culture is, and sometimes I ask that too because sometimes it feels unfair that the culture can't defend itself, but we just say, the culture says this, uh, but there is some reality to uh, an antithetical message to the Christian faith. And so uh, for the last few weeks, we've been kind of uncovering, unpacking, uh, and kind of reframing what our beliefs can be. And so uh, this morning, we talk about this, uh, this notion that Jesus, in order to know Jesus, uh, it, it only and only through the scriptures. Now, before your socks get into a bunch, let me unpack that a little bit more. Uh, we believe at Bethany that this is the authority, the word of God, where it is a primary way for us to know and encounter the living Christ. Uh, and we also believe that there's, there, there's experiences, there's people, there's our creation, there's uh, so many different other ways that God speaks because God is so big. Uh, and for us, we miss out on that because uh, we fall into this distortion, this idea that if it isn't this, then we can't ever experience God. And, and so the distortion would be that then uh, Christians are intellectual, intellectuals, Christians uh, uh, are out of touch. And, and maybe you've heard this before, and oftentimes it comes out of that notion. And so we're going to unpack that distortion just a little bit more. But as we do, uh, will you uh, pray with me? God, thank you that you speak to us through the good times, the bad times, the ugliest of times. And that we may not know that very second, that very moment, but we know that as your story for us unfolds, that we can see your beauty in those moments. Not just those moments, but even the people that are around us today, the things that we see, the, the blessings that we have, God, may all those point back to you, the creator, the giver. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. So today's verse comes from Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through 18, and we'll kind of go through that whole chapter. Uh, and the word of the Lord says this, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoics philosophers began to debate with them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, you see here, again, as we unpack that, Paul is amongst people with different beliefs and ideologies. 
Uh, and, and I don't know about you, I read these verses, and I think about even when I first came to faith, and I had mentors all over my, my life, and, I, and I'm to this day so grateful for them. And, but with them, I remember this one conversation I had with one of my mentors in college. Uh, we were going over doctrines, okay? We, we, just like different ideas and beliefs about God. And I asked him about a particular belief. As a matter of fact, I don't even remember what that belief is. Uh, but apparently, it became so worldly, so uh, pushed by culture, and, and not of the Bible, at least what he believed, and so his response, I'll never forget. And again, if you've ever been around the church, maybe you've heard this kind of response uh, before as well. He said this. He says, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Or the opposite is true. God never said it. So therefore, I cannot believe it. And that settles it. Now again, before you get your socks in a bunch... We do believe that the scripture is the primary way that God speaks to us. And I often say, if you want to hear, if you want to know, if you want to encounter the living and resurrected Christ, then look no further because God speaks through our sacred text called the Bible. And at the same time, I wonder if there's ways that we take uh, this understanding of God said it, I believe that settles it so far that the Bible intend, the, the Bible becomes what the Bible never intended it to be. And, and, and as a result of that, we fail or we miss what God might have to say because, God, again, God is so big, God speaks in and through many different things and many different people. And yet, with this idea that, okay, this is it. If it's not in here, then it's nothing. If it is in here, then it's everything. And we've seen time and time again that when people take the Bible, and I'm going to use this word that people might disagree with, but when people read the Bible so literally, because of this, because of the God said, I believe it, that settles it, we've seen much harm in our world, in our history. Genocide, slavery, sexism. Like all these different things we've seen because people are so stuck on God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And it reminds me of this image that I remember uh, from a TV show that I used to watch uh, with my roommates several years ago. Uh, and it was during the days uh, when Netflix, some of you guys may not remember this, uh, but you had to, you go online and you select shows that you want to watch and they send it to you through the mail. Anyone else remember that? Okay, I'm not alone here. And the worst part was, they only send you a DVD at a time, and maybe two if you paid more, but we were too cheap and too poor. So we would get one DVD at a time, watch an episode, and then have to return it, wait two, day, two days before we can watch the next episode. And the show, uh, some of you guys may have seen it, don't judge me, but it's called How I Met Your Mother, okay? And there was an episode where it was the big Super Bowl episode, Okay? Uh, and amongst these friends, they had this tradition that anytime the Super Bowl came on every year, that they would watch it together. That was their, their, their friend tradition. Now, this particular year, uh, for whatever it was, they weren't able to watch the Super Bowl at the time it was supposed to be. So one had work, one had family obligations, whatever it was, they weren't able to watch it. So they made a pact. And they said, we are not going to watch the Super Bowl. 
at the, at the time. We're going to record it and watch it later in that evening. And since we all commit to not watching it, it'll be a surprise. It, it'll be intense. Like, it'll be as if we were watching it live. And so everyone's like, yes, I agree. I agree with that. But you have to remember or know that uh, these friends, they live in the middle of New York City. They walk around, they take the train, they talk to people, there's people everywhere. And so they, they were smart. They knew that even though they pre-recorded, they knew that if they were to just step outside after the game, they would know exactly who won. So they invented this uh, apparatus, these glasses, where they, the sides were blocked, they had earmuffs on so they couldn't hear, and they would walk from train to place to place, just really just straight ahead, not watching anything around because they didn't want to hear who won. Uh, and it looks something like this. Anyone watch this episode? Okay, thank you. So you know what I'm talking about. Uh, this gentleman's name is Barney, a.k.a. Doogie Hauser, Right? Yes, okay, somebody's in my generation. Uh, so uh, Barney and the friends, they invented these sunglasses where they knew that as long as they had these on, they couldn't see around them, they couldn't hear anything, and they would just make a beeline right where they had to go and back. And I look at this image, and this is the image that I thought about when we, when we unpack this idea of God says it, therefore I believe it, that settles it, where we walk around as believers, as Christians, like this in our life. We miss out on hearing and seeing from other people in the way that God might speak because we're so stuck. And for some of us, this might be new language or new idea. Again, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but there is a sacredness of Scripture that we will never get anywhere else. I feel like I have to keep saying that because for many of us, you grew up in a Christian subculture that I did where... We took the Bible and we put it and elevated it to a place that it was never supposed to be. And there's even a word for that. It's called bibliolatry. Come from Bible idolatry. And so it bears repeating that we do have this sacredness, this understanding that there's no other primary way than the scriptures. At the same time, we walk around like this, missing out on people, on loving, on experiencing, on seeing how God is speaking and creating right before our very eyes. And so again, then the distortion becomes uh, Christians are perceived as anti-intellectual, out of touch, even divisive. You see protests, you see people with signs, you see people, you know, doing rallies and, and talking about spewing hate and how much one disagrees with the other because the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. Again, not the biblical intention, and we miss out again and again what God might be saying. And so here in Acts chapter 17, and really, I need to give you the entire context, which is Acts chapter 16 through 18 is the whole backdrop of what's happening when Paul is in Athens. And a few things to bear in mind is this. This is Paul's second missionary journey. So before this, he was uh, in the ancient Near East, in Asia Minor, Turkey, uh, the Middle East, as we would know it today. Uh, And then in 49 AD, he and his friends Silas and and, uh, Barnabas would come, and they would go to Asia Minor, to Macedonia, 
in Greece, for the first time, the name of Jesus was proclaimed in Europe. Okay, so they move uh, from Asia Minor, again, modern-day Turkey, and they go because the Spirit has called them to go to Europe, which would be, uh, again, Macedonia and Greece. Uh, in Macedonia and Greece were, were Roman provinces. At this time, uh, they were under Roman occupation uh, under Caesar. And, and so as Paul and Silas, uh, sorry, and Timothy uh, go to uh, Macedonia, they make uh, several pit stops along the way. So Troas is where they start. That's Turkey. That's Asia Minor. They felt a calling to go to uh, Macedonia. Their first stop was Philippi. They go to Philippi. Uh, and in Philippi, a woman named Lydia was converted uh, to Christianity, to, to the way of Jesus. And that was the first convert in all of Europe to Christ, it says. Uh, and then they go to Thessalonica because uh, aside from what happened with Lydia, uh, the message of Jesus in this Hellenistic culture, this Greek culture, was not very well accepted. The Greeks already had their way of life, had their way of worship. And when Paul and Silas and Timothy come bring this message uh, of Jesus, it wasn't uh, received very well, uh, at least by the masses. And so they essentially got kicked out of Philippi. They go to Thessalonica. It got a little bit better, but it wasn't great. And so they continued to move on to Berea. And then here, again, Berea, it got better uh, than any other situation in Macedonia. And then they went to Athens, and then they went to Corinth, and then they went back to Ephesus, uh, which is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And so here uh, we see that Paul and Silas and Timothy went all around to share the good news of Jesus. And as we read in chapter, in chapter 17, verse 16 through 18, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he goes to Athens, and he was deeply distressed because they were worshiping the way that the Athenians worshiped. Multiple gods, uh, pantheism, were like culture, the, the god of everything, the god of water, the god of fertility, the god of fire, what, what have you. There were just hundreds and hundreds of gods and he was distressed. And it says, so he argued, uh, so at least the NRSV says, so he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout people, uh, and also in the marketplace, as we read. And then he says, he came, aco- he came across two schools uh, of thought in Athens, particularly in Athens, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. They debated with Paul. And this is really, really important. So some observations about Athens was it was an extremely philosophical world, per se. Uh, It was highly spiritual, highly intellectual, uh, highly wealthy, highly educated. I wonder if that reminds you of a particular city, maybe Seattle. And in Athens, there was, again, two major schools of philosophical thought, but they absolutely had nothing in common. As a matter of fact, they were the complete opposite. There were the Epicureans. They were all about seeking pleasure. They were seeking experience, about feeling good. Again, if it didn't feel good, then don't do it. Do only what feels good. That is the point of life, to feel good. And the Stoics would counter that and say, as a matter of fact, the life and to see God and see joy and see beauty is not about pleasure, experience, and feeling good. It's about being actually emotionless, being in complete self-control of yourself that even if anything good or bad happened, that you would have no feeling. You would just stay the course. 
They're all about virtuosity, just behaving and living the right way. And again, self-control. So you'd see that these two groups had nothing in common except for one thing. The one thing that they did agree on and live by was that they would claim their pride in being Athenians from Athens. They may disagree philosophically, but at the end of the day, what they agreed on was that they were both Athenians. And as Athenians, as Greeks, they both see Paul coming in with this message of Jesus and the resurrection, pretty much disturbing everything that was going on. And they called him a babbler. Who is this babbler? Here's Paul talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And these Athenians are saying, who is this babbler? And the babbler, in the original language, uh, was an Athenian slang, was a Greek slang. And it was meant to be very offensive. A proper interpretation of babbler would be the word, well, seed picker, so like a bird picking seeds. And this whole idea is that they would just pick up what they hear, being undisciplined. They would have no real beliefs of their own. Uh, so it was insulting. So they're like, who is this babbler who's just picking up just random beliefs here and there and bringing it and teaching it as if that's true? That person is undisciplined. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know the true religions and the true gods. So what is he doing? And in the verse 19, it says this. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. So the Athenians, both uh, Epicureans and Stoics, even though they hated each other, they had one thing in common. We need to get rid of this guy who's bringing in a message that is going against everything in our culture. And so they took him to Areopagus. And for those of you a bit familiar with the Bible, another word for Areopagus is Mars Hill. It's an actual hill. Uh, Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is about? What are you presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what you mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived, they spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the, to the latest ideas. And, and so it almost sounds cordial, right? So the Athenians are like, hey, Paul, like you have this new message But you also have to understand that they had a little bit of confusion, maybe a little bit of annoyance or frustration or anger towards Paul that they would offend him by calling him babbler. So he says, hey, let's go up to Mars Hill, Areopagus, and tell me more about your your faith, something that we've never, ever heard of. And so it sounds cordial, but you have to understand as we understand the backdrop of what's happening uh, is that Mars Hill, or Areopagus, was named after Ares, uh, where in Greek mythology, uh, Ares was uh, judged on top of Mars Hill for killing one of Poseidon's sons. So it was named after this whole incident where Ares killed another god's son, so they took him up to Mars Hill, because on top of Mars Hill was, the Greek, according to myth, Greek mythology, it was a courtroom with officials, judges, and it was a place where only uh, cases of homicide was taken. And so if you look at the history of Mars Hill, it was uh, originally because Ares, who killed Poseidon's son, he was to go to Mars Hill to be judged and then to be persecuted for his actions. It was a courtroom setting where the only the most evil and heinous cr- criminals go to. 
And so it may sound cordial saying, hey, you know what, let's go to Areopagus, let's go to Mars Hill because I want to hear more. When in reality, it's, it's because this message that you're bringing is so offensive and so anti what we believe and so wrong, we're going to take you on top of Mars Hill and, and essentially we're going to persecute. We're going to kill you for the message that you're bringing. And yet here, even in that circumstance, this is where I believe Paul demonstrates and exposes Again, this distortion of the Super Bowl glasses that we've seen. This distortion of, I believe it, that sells it. Uh, It's in the Bible that, uh, I believe it, that settles it. And and I think Paul, in this moment, when he's going up to Areopagus, going to Mars Hill, he sheds light on this distortion that we commonly uh, have fallen into. And, And it's this. First, Paul speaks with conviction. Paul speaks with conviction. On top of Mars Hill, the place where he knows that he's going to be crucified for his beliefs, he says this, Paul then stood up in the meeting of Areopagus and said, people of Athens, now these are officials, these are important people, these are people that have the power uh, to arrest him, to persecute him uh, for his criminal actions. He says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant. He calls them ignorant of the very thing you worship. You don't even know what you worship, people. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So first he kind of like sets it straight like, you don't even know what you believe. It says to an unknown God. Then he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Now, that you couldn't say anything more radical to the Greeks where they were all about icons. They were all about engraving. They were all about statues. They were all about all the things, visuals that they believed that the gods lived in. And so he goes up to this place where he theoretically knew that he would be killed for this message. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples but built, uh, built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything in it. You are alive, he says, because of God. You are here because of God. God is here not because of what anything you did, not anything you built, not everything you created, but because God is God. Now again, this is a message that was very antithetical to the way of Hellenistic life and worship. And as God says, he goes. Wherever God says, he goes. And, and it doesn't matter, he's saying, it's like God created you, God created everything. And this is a message that we can live by. Speak truth of your convictions wherever you might go. We all have, especially if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, we have been compelled. Uh, We've experienced the love. We've experienced the forgiveness. We've experienced the transformation, not in our own own selves, but our families, our, uh, our communities. And this message of Paul is saying, speak with conviction no matter what it might cost you. And for Paul, his message of sharing about God and the resurrection, he knew that he could be killed for that message. 
And, and, and I love what it says in Deuteronomy when God says to jo, uh, Joshua, he says, go and do not be afraid for the Lord God is with you. Go, do not be afraid for the Lord God is with you. And, and I think about this even in moments where I want to share about my faith. When people ask questions, when they're curious, uh, oftentimes we're really good at doing and serving it and, and really it depends on what you know, philosophy or what ideologies of Christian faith you take, but many of us were, were good at just doing all the right things, saying all the right things, and serving and loving our people in the neighborhood and in our communities, and that's so important. We need that. I, that. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying we have to do that, and we must share with people what compels our lives and who change, changes and changed our own lives. And God says, go and do not be afraid, for I, the Lord God, is with you. I remember when I first heard that after several, several months of, of interviews and meetings that I would be the next pastor here at Bethany West Seattle. And I remember immediately hearing the good news that I, I would be appointed to that. And, and then immediately being afraid. Like, what do I have to offer What do I know that they don't know? Like, what is it that makes me qualified for this position? And I remember my first day with all those insecurities and all those doubts, uh, another pastor from from Bethany texted me with that Deuteronomy verse, and he simply says, do not be afraid, for I am with you, is what God says. And those simple words, I'll never forget, and it transformed everything uh, that day forward about how, uh, how much courage it requires to share of our faith, but to know that wherever we go, that God is with us. And so speak the truth of Jesus, not in an argument, like n- not to argue with anybody, not in a condescending or a superior attitude, but with humility and love. See, create curiosity with how you live. Why does that person forgive so easily? Why is that person not angry? Why is that person so generous? Why does that person care for the poor? Why does that person care for reconciliation, the homeless? Create curiosity with your life. Then answer it with the name of Christ. See, as St. Francis of Assisi, a lot of us, and I've said this many times, St. Francis of Assisi says this, Teach the gospel, preach the gospel, speak of the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. And oftentimes, it is necessary to use words. See, like the Epicureans and the Stoics, there seems to be these sides. Uh, And today, those sides look something like this. One is heavy on evangelism. Uh, about taking their Bible, about taking surveys, about taking the four spiritual laws, whatever it is, and going to people on the street and say, do you know Jesus? Let me tell you about Jesus. Uh, you know, when I travel, you know, and I have conversations with the people next to me, I ask them what they do, and they tell me, and then they ask me what I do, and, and I say, well, I'm a pastor. And that shuts down all conversation. Like, he, this person does not want to talk to me after that, because this person knows, like, oh, great, this person is going to evangelize, proselytize, just teach me and tell me everything about Jesus and how bad I am and how much I need to convert to, to this person's faith. And, and so I've actually taken advantage of that. When I just want to sleep, I ask that person what they do, because I want them to ask me what I do so I can tell them I'm a pastor and that cuts off all communication and I get to fall asleep 
Because there's a side that is heavy on evangelism, uh, we can call that the Stoics. And then there's this other side we can call Epicureans, or the opposite of that, where some people would label as progressive or liberals or whatever it is, that were more justice, more action-oriented, who was heavy on doing, but maybe lack the compelling uh, voice uh, of conveying the message of Jesus. And, and I would argue, and I would push for, we need both. We need both. We need to preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. But oftentimes, words are necessary. So let's create the curiosity and let's answer it with the name of Jesus. So don't be afraid to do that. Wherever you might go, where you might feel persecuted, where you might feel outcasted or marginalized, because when we do it with love and compassion and humility, I believe that changes everything. Second, with that said, Paul exemplifies seeing beauty. And out are you seeing beauty? And beauty is found everywhere. It says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. He's talking to the Athenians. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offering. Therefore, since we are God's offering, offspring, should not think that, think that the divine is, being, being, is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. So Paul, for one, is not afraid to speak his truth, his conviction, no matter what it might cost him in this situation, it might cost him his life. But in the midst of speaking his conviction of, of the resurrected Christ, he also sees beauty in other things. He looks at the Athenians in their way of life, and even their poet says, uh, we are his offspring somewhere, and he uses that, and he says, you know what, that's right. We, I mean, we might have some differences on how we approach that, but we can use that, that's correct. That we, I see beauty, I see God through what your gods might have to say. And for some of us, that's really hard for us to comprehend, Paul is using their own beliefs, their own convictions to point back to Jesus. And I don't want to get too into it, but there's this idea of these theological words called general revelation and specific revelation. And I believe that no matter what, we all receive general revelation, beauty, something that points us to Christ. You have your own poets and your own poets have said. And I love this because it eliminates this duality between the sacred and the secular. Is that Christian? Is that Christian music? If it's not Christian music, I can't listen to it. Is that person a Christian? If, they can, if they're not a Christian, then I can't follow that person. I can't, you know, like whatever that person has to say. And Paul is saying, you know what? You can find beauty. You know, when Maria and I went to Indonesia, when we went to Bali, it was very Buddhist. And she sometimes jokes, and don't be alarmed, but she would joke and say, my husband came back as a, as a Buddhist. And that's not true, okay? So don't tweet or blog or, or any of that stuff, okay? So please. <clears throat> but what she means is that I've, I was telling her, like, man, this is beautiful. Nonviolence, feeling peace and tranquility. 
Now, there's some things I would disagree with about emptiness because I would want to fill ourselves with, with the Spirit. But, you know, there was just so, the way that the Buddhists lived, the monks were just so kind and compassionate, so generous. Like, it was amazing. And, and I thought about that and I said, those very things are also the very things that Jesus wants us to do and live by. And, and instead of pushing me away from my faith in Christ, it actually pushed me closer to Jesus. It made my faith richer because I saw all those things, because I knew that God is big and God speaks through even people that I may disagree with, that I may not even identify with. And I'll tell you what, God might even speak through the people that you dislike and that you highly disagree with. God might actually speak through experiences that you don't like, that you might love, that you might hate, the good, the bad, the ugly. Even the video that we see, God speaks through the very ways that we may not even understand. But God speaks to us and we miss it if we wear these goggles saying, you know what, this is it. Bibliolatry. And it's crazy because it almost feels like Oftentimes, you know, like I have this wedding ring and it's supposed to point me and remind me of the love I have for my wife. But what if I ignored that part and just worship this actual band, this cheap band that's tungsten, that's not even gold or anything? What if I just worship now? Is my wife here? No, she's downstairs. I love this. Okay. I love this. (laughs) But this is not meant to be worshiped. This is meant to point me to the covenant I made with my wife. And when we fail to do this, that's when we create division and duality, like us versus them, sacred and secular. But what if all beauty belongs to God? What if God is the author of all beauty? And so then when we see what is beautiful, we see Christ himself. So how's God speaking to you? What and who is God using to challenge you and convict you and reminding you of God's own love? And I hope that does include people that you disagree with and that people disagree with you and our, or people that uh, may not have things in common with you. As a matter of fact, I would say that's a prerequisite to knowing God even deeper. That we won't grow in our faith being stuck in an echo chamber. There's a creation is it through experience? Is it through community? What in what ways is God speaking to you? I remember when I was in seminary, we, it was in L.A., and we would go surfing before class. And I remember during finals week, and I've shared this story before. This is one of my favorite stories where it was during finals week, and I was so stressed out. I had to take my surfboard. I'd go out to the ocean, and the sun was rising. And in the midst of my anxiety, I was paddling it out. And I kid you not, this was picture perfect. I saw dolphins. I saw dolphins coming out of the water. And it was a quick, gentle, and beautiful reminder that God is beautiful, that life is good. Is God speaking through the beauty around you, the people around you, the experience of good, the bad, and the ugly? Listen. Finally, Examine the scriptures. God speaks to us. So will you, will you speak and proclaim the message of the resurrected Christ with, with courage, knowing that God is with you, will never leave you, never abandon you. But as you do that, will you know that God speaks to you and speaks to us and teaches us through all of creation? But will you combine those two and will you examine the scriptures?
Here it says, soon as it was night, the believer sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So this is before Athens, but it was in the same second missionary journey. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were uh, of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. So because he went to Berea after Thessalonica. Uh, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined. Received the message and examined uh, with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. They loved what Paul was saying, and they examined it with Scripture. Does it line up? Is it true? Is it congruent? Does it speak from a place of love and compassion? Oftentimes, when we see beauty, will you examine it through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of Scripture? I'll show you this, this last thing before I end. It's called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Uh, many of you are affiliated with or have been to SPU, the Christian College, and that's where I went, very Wesleyan background, a lot of prominent scholars, Wesleyan background. And one of Wes, John Wesley's, um, which is a denomination like Methodist, Wesleyan, he had this theological perspective that even to this day is considered a Wesleyan jewel. And the quadrilateral uh, and really a better definition would be like an isosceles trapezoid. I think I got that right. Because the sides, and that's a very important distinction because that means the sides are uneven. It means the bottom base is the biggest part, and then everything is based off of that. Some of the engineers are like, no, that's not right. Okay, but you get my point, okay? The scripture becomes the base, the lens in which we experience and he would say experience, reason, and tradition. You can, I use other words to describe that. But at the end of the day, he's talking about Scripture being a lens through which everything is filtered through. But it doesn't mean ignore everything. It means see where God is speaking and see if it is aligned through the Scriptures. Because you see this in Second Timothy, it says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. This is the authority. This is the breath of God. Now, what we don't understand is that this Greek word breathed, theopneuskos, is an adjective, not a verb. The reason why that's important is because the breath is an adjective. It's describing rather than what God is doing. And so essentially what that means is that all Scripture is infused with the Holy Spirit. With God's breath, it's infused with it. It's an adjective, not a verb. And so may we know and be transformed by the scriptures. May we live knowing what is beauty, what is true, because it's congruent to the, to the word of God. But may we not neglect all the ways that God is speaking through creation, through experience, through people, that God is big and God wants to speak, so don't miss out. May the scriptures, the sacred, authoritative scriptures, point us to the resurrected Christ. And may that transform our lives. May we see beauty in that. So I'm going to invite the worship team back up, and I'm going to invite our communion service forward.
as we enter into a time of communion, one of the night where Jesus was betrayed. He says, take this bread in remembrance of me. This is my body that was broken for you. He says, take this cup, drink it. This is the blood that was shed for you. And so may we be pointed through this act of sacrament to the cross. This is what we believe. This is what we live by. This is our conviction. The life, death, and the resurrection of Christ. And may we be compelled to share that to the world in a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful way. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your cross, for your life, your death, and your resurrection. May we be constantly be pointed to that, yes, through the scripture, through the holy text, but also through people, through things, through uh, events and experiences. God, help us not to miss out on your life, death, and resurrection in our lives. Help us not to miss out. We yearn for it, God. And may we see it. And may we share it. May we give it away. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. We'll continue in worship and come when you're ready.